You've entered Bookstorm with Kristen Civiletto and me, Chris Storm. This is a podcast devoted to best-selling books that matter, books that make a difference. We're diving down deep with beloved authors about their stories. We're exposing hot-button topics and heartfelt themes, the issues that affect each of us in our own lives as siblings, parents, partners, friends, as human beings. We're braving new ideas, fresh thoughts, hard lessons and important truths. Those kinds of things that stay with us long after we turn the last page and close the book. Welcome back to Bookstorm, listeners from 36 countries. I don't even know what we're up to yet. We're grateful for all of your listenership. We listen to when you write in and ask for authors. We are very excited to tell you that, yes, we have the incredible Katie Hayes with us today. She has a debut novel called The Cloisters, which has just exploded. And Katie, welcome. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be to be here. I really appreciate you guys taking the time. Thank you for taking your time because you are busy and everywhere. And let me tell our readers a little bit about you because I know they're going to be curious. So Katie is a Californian, a writer, and a cake aficionado. That sounds interesting. She lives in the shadow of the Sierra with her husband and their dog, Queso. In addition to writing, Katie works as an adjunct art history professor, teaching rural students from Truckee to Tacopa. She holds an MA in art history from Williams and a PhD in art history from Berkeley. Her academic writing has been published by Ashgate. I love what it says in your bio about your writing fiction. Her work explores how far humans are willing to go to believe the unbelievable. Her work explores strange but real worlds, complex female friendships, all things that we're intrigued by. She also runs a substack called June Gloom, where she writes sporadically about creativity, culture, and California. That's worth looking into, listeners. When not writing or eating cake, I love that, Katie is a skier, a cyclist, a trail runner, an Eastern Sierra enthusiast, and we're pretty excited because we caught her today right off the ski trail, two minutes off, and here to talk to us at Bookstorm. And her book, The Cloisters, that we're here to talk to her about today, was an instant New York Times bestseller, read with Jenna Pick, and Barnes and Noble book club pick. Wow. Katie, welcome. So happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Katie, we like to give our listeners a little bit of a summary of the book. So if you'll allow me, I just want to talk without giving away any spoilers about what the book is about. And I would love for you to jump in or add anything at the end if you'd like to. Um, Well, listeners, this story is about Anne Stilwell. She is a college student in her small town. She's experienced some trauma. She's ready to go somewhere else and start her career and her life in continued education. She's been selected to work as a summer intern at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And when she gets there, there's not a spot for her. She instead finds herself assigned to the Cloisters, a Gothic museum and garden renowned for its medieval art collection. Some of you may have been there before. 
There she encounters another student researcher and the director who are mounting an exhibit on the history of divination. Anne is just thrilled to be there. She listens, participates, and dives right in on the research. And she starts to learn more about their theories on telling the future. And pretty soon she's drawn in. She discovers a key part of a hidden 15th century deck of cards that might hold the key to predicting the future. But then things turn deadly and she finds herself in a race for answers, even as the line between reality and non-reality become a little bit blurred. Do you want to add anything, Katie, to our, our little summary there? No, I think that's an excellent summary. All right, wonderful. Well, if everyone's ready to brave the storm, we'll jump in. Chris, kick We're us ready. Off. There were so there's so many very deep topics within this novel that had Kristen and I talking for so long. We could have thought of 20 questions, but we had to limit it. I love the title of the book. Um, we live in New York State. I've been to the cloisters a couple of times. I love the Met, but I couldn't help but wonder, as the reader, if the title cloister held maybe some more meaning than just the location of the museum. Um, in your book, the cloisters were described as square medieval garden surrounded by walkways. The characters showed us that there was a whole life within this sequestered cloister, but also outside in their interaction between the two. I loved how the character Anne once referred to the interior of the cloister as having kept everything else out, but we had crumbled like the building falling into the sea. Yet another time, Anne spoke of the cloister's exterior as warm and buzzy, but soon the leaves would turn colors and the air less forgiving. It gave you an air of mystery and curiosity about both what was inside and outside. I wondered if you could shed a little light as the author. What was your intention upon choosing the title of this book? Maybe hidden and obvious. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is, as a writer, I'm actually really obsessed with book titles. Um, and I, in particular, really like to make sure that I have a title, sometimes even before I start a book or usually by the end of the first draft. And the title for this book actually came very late for me. I had some working titles I didn't like. And ultimately, I went with The Cloisters for two reasons. And I think one, obviously, is that I wanted the novel to really have a sense of place. And I wanted readers to feel like they were being transported to the location and reading it. So titling it after its location felt really appropriate. But I also really am interested in the idea of Anne's experience in New York as being cloistered, that she is in this really kind of constrained environment with a small group of people in a very, in many ways, in an isolated location in one of the biggest cities in the world. And so I think there is that sort of double meaning in the title where it's not just the location, which is incredibly important to the book itself and to the narrative, but it's also this sense of being cloistered as a verb and this idea that you are isolated with a group of people. I mean, even when she's sort of out in the world of the city of New York, and even when she's out sort of in upstate New York, she's still really kind of cloistered with this group and with these friends she's making. And so I really liked that duality in the title. Yeah. I love that. And you have been to the cloisters yourself, I believe that I read. And when you visited it, 
did you feel an air? It's very medieval. It's very Gothic. I loved walking through the little walkways and the wrought iron and the tapestries. And it does give you a sense of mystery, maybe even a little foreboding. Is that one of the reasons you chose that location? You know, the location I think came just immediately to me as a place that I felt like fiction hadn't sufficiently explored and that feels so unusual and so gothic in a city like New York and also so isolated. And and I had visited the cloisters before. And for me, I have to say as a reader, you know, I grew up in kind of a rural town. And when I was younger, I read books as the best, cheapest and easiest way to travel. And so I always in a book look at the location and the setting and ask myself, is this a place I want to spend four, five, six hours, however long it's going to take me to read this book. And so as a writer, I'm really interested in the idea of place and the role that place plays in novels. And so the cloisters for me just felt like this incredible environment. It felt like a museum novel that really hadn't been um, written yet because the museum is so unlike I suppose um, the Musée Cluny in Paris is very similar to the Cloisters Museum. Uh, but outside of the Cluny, there aren't that many museums that have this kind of really uncanny relationship of gothic and stony and dark in this kind of skyscraper, bright, dramatic, dynamic city. Mm-hmm. So true. Loved it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, people during the Renaissance period were obviously enthralled with science. I mean, we saw these incredible advances in astronomy and anatomy, medicine, mathematics, geography, but they also seem to have a preoccupation with divination or using a variety of practices to either foretell the future or seek some guidance in making decisions. And your novel highlights a few of the more eye-opening practices, like interpreting the flight patterns of birds or looking at the entrails of animals or casting lots made of bones. And I was wondering, why were people during this period of time really focused on this idea of divination? You know, there were a lot of rapid changes. Could that apocalyptic feel be something that was fueling that? And I was wondering if you could comment on that a little bit. Yeah, I think that's actually such a rich question. And I think that there are so many Renaissance scholars who have devoted space to that. And I'll I'll give kind of more of a top line summary than what a lot of them would be able to offer. And I think, you know, one of the things that happens during the Renaissance is, of course, you do have these advancements like you're talking about in the sci- in the scientific realm, in the artistic realms. And I, I think to a certain extent, that's because this renewed interest in antiquity and in sort of ancient Rome and ancient Greece arrives in Italy during this time period. And the thing is, I think, you know, Renaissance Italians are trying to take that that sort of classical past a step further in their scientific thinking, but they're still very preoccupied with the kind of myths and um, beliefs and practices of ancient Rome. And and they really, they contort themselves in, in these incredible, beautiful rhetorical ways to be able to fit all of that into their Christian worldview too. Because of course the Renaissance, unlike ancient Rome, is deeply Catholic in Italy. And so they are working under the kind of auspice and the Aegeus of Christ and the Bible. And so they have this really incredible ability to make a lot of these ancient practices fit into the contemporary Christian narrative that they're working with during the Renaissance. But I really think 
that that fascination with divination comes kind of from the top in Renaissance Italy, and it comes from aristocrats who are themselves, you know, these kind of gentlemen scholars reading about ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And they sort of hit upon this as an interesting practice from the ancient period. And they find themselves doing things like hiring astrologers and, you know, kind of telling their own futures off their birth charts. And I think it's really that kind of aristocrat scholar that brings a lot of that divination from the sort of ancient Roman, ancient Greek past into the present for the Renaissance. Yeah, it's fascinating because you look at time periods throughout history where there are rapid changes. And sometimes that fuels a little bit of fear and maybe uh, you know, the impulse to want to be able to control more and know what the future holds by any means possible. Yeah, you know, I think that's definitely true. And certainly I don't really think of the Renaissance as a particularly apocalyptic period, but the medieval period, which directly precedes it, is deeply apocalyptic in its thinking and is very preoccupied with the idea of what happens when the world ends and, you know, how are we going to know who is going to be raptured and who's going to be sent to hell. And I think that you definitely see, you know, we often think of the Renaissance as this really clean break with the medieval period, but those are things that might trickle in too, that you kind of see um, just staying in the stream of history in a way. Very, it was very interesting. I also had to touch on this because I just found this so curious through the whole story of Anne and Rachel and how Kristen had described the plot of the story. Um, Your book showed us the often unfair side of academia, Um, nepotism, gatekeeping, and privilege. It translates not just to New York City in the art world, but all sorts of industries across the country. You know, I have two college kids. They graduated. They looked for jobs. When graduating and beginning work, we often look for a contact, a foot in the door. For industry leaders, this is great. We have knowledge of this candidate's work ethic or character. They can be trusted. But what about the applicant? This process of um, preferences or even prejudices can be really tough for the candidate. And I wondered what you may have been sort of trying to shed the light on about academia for those of us who are not involved in it. Yeah, you know, I I should start by saying that at the beginning you said that I received my PhD from Berkeley and I didn't, I left Berkeley before I finished my PhD. So I think perhaps that tells you a little bit about how I feel about academia in some ways. But I think one of the things that's really interesting to me is that academia, I think you're right that we do in other industries see this kind of who are your contacts, who do you know? I think academia, though, is still one of those places where everything feels very behind closed doors. All of these decisions are very opaque. None of them are transparent. And I think that we really have the sense in academia still that it's all about your lineage and where you come from. So, you know, it's about who your advisor was, who your advisor's advisor was, what kind of genealogy you're part of. Those genealogies depend on the kind of jobs that you're able to get and where you might end up in your career. And I think it's incredibly Byzantine and complex and still very hard for people outside of the academic world to understand. But I also think this is one of the reasons why campus novels and novels about academia are so popular because they're in a, they're a way to shed light on these very, um, in a lot of ways, very elitist 
very privileged, very closed worlds. And so I think that, you know, the thing about academia is it, it can both be incredibly rewarding, like any job, it can be incredibly rewarding and it can be incredibly toxic. Um, and I think that, you know, the thing that's hard about academia is maybe perhaps this is changing, but I think in academia, people are very loath to talk about whether or not they've had a hard go of it. I, I think that it's still very much an industry and a discipline where, you know, no matter what your experience was, you're kind of words to the public will always be fairly, you know, it was fun. I had a great time. It was interesting work. It was rewarding. And it's it's really hard to strip away and get down to the, the nitty gritty details below that, because I think that that's something, you know, that that's really, really difficult still for people to talk about in a world that is um, so uh, cloistered, you might say. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're not retired yet, because as the old saying goes, you can't burn any bridges. So we go from one career, one position to another, and we have to be very careful if we're still working to promote it. I still do see this today, even with my own kids, where they went to high school, predetermined where they got into college. I'm sorry, but it's true. I think it's true. Where they went to college helped them to get the positions they have in Manhattan today. And I wish it wasn't the case. I do see so much more um, scholarships and uh, fundraisers and uh, more of an uh, open mind towards underprivileged people and just in intelligent people from all walks of life that is not somebody's nephew and somebody's cousin and somebody's best friend's kid now beginning to get these experiences. But thank you for opening our eyes to that. I loved the first scene of the book when Anne gets the job after first being told, and this isn't giving any spoilers, that she wasn't going to have it, she was allowed in there. And maybe even because of that, do you think treasured it more? Maybe worked harder because of it? Yeah, I I think that's true. I think that's possible. I also do think that there is a sense that if you're coming from maybe a, a smaller school or a less well-known school or a public school that you might have to work a little harder in graduate school than some other people. But I would also say, I mean, the great thing about academia, despite a lot of its flaws, is that I do have some friends who came up from kind of what you would consider unremarkable state schools, not to cast shade on, on state schools. I personally went to a public university and am a huge advocate for public universities. Um, but I think that you know, the nice thing is once you're there, if you shine, you can shine. And I think that that in that sense, it is really deeply equitable. But getting in the door is the hard part. It's the one once you're kind of in the room, then it's just about, you know, skill sets and knowledge. So I think the hard part, you know, for Anne, the hard part is, as you mentioned, getting into the room. Once you're in the room, you know, it's easier to stay. It was very interesting. Yeah, I think this topic is a hot one right now because there's a Netflix show about ancient apocalypse. And the idea is that the academicians and archaeologists were refusing to accept some new ideas about the impact of astroarchaeology. And yeah. so there's been this, you know, big blow up in, in at least that field. And I can see that being echoed in others. So it's very fascinating to us. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about another character. First of all, your character has talked a great deal about the study of art history and the role of the scholars we were just talking about. But there was one character, Aruna in particular, that highlights the real task of the scholar is to reanimate something that has been dead for centuries. And I also saw her as a very interesting oracle herself. 
But she offered warnings, not based on divination. She looked at history with people, some of the things she observed, and then she issued warnings. So I thought she was an interesting counterpoint to some of the other characters and themes. And I wanted to ask you, you know, is Aruna an example of why we study history so that, you know, we don't repeat mistakes. We know we have guidance for decision-making. We know who and what to avoid. I was wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I actually think uh, my favorite quote, uh, one of my favorite quotes is a quote by uh, Karl Marx at the beginning of his very brief book, The 18th of Rumer. And he wrote at the beginning, history repeats itself twice. The first time is tragedy and the second time as farce. And so I do think there's this sense that when history repeats itself, you are saving yourself from a tragedy. But I do feel like when it it starts to repeat more than once, it's actually, it, it can become very um, almost comical, tragicomic, I guess, in some ways. But I think the interesting thing for me about Aruna is I love her so much as a character because she sits kind of outside of these locations where Anne and Patrick and Rachel are working, but is still deeply embedded in this world. And so she has this ability to kind of always be looking at what's going on from the outside. And I think one of the things I wanted to draw out in the novel was the way in which Anne and Rachel and Patrick and even Leo are really absorbed by and influenced by the environment and the atmosphere they're occupying. And Aruna is almost better positioned to be Oracle-like and have that kind of vision and clarity because she's actually not engaged. She's watching from the outside. She's up at the Beinecke at Yale. She's not in New York with them. And so her ability to kind of move in and out of that world actually allows her to have more clarity than the people in the world have. And I think for me, that's something that I was really interested in exploring in the book. I'm really interested in the question of what are we capable of believing? And so for me, a big part of answering that question is environment. Like if you tell a ghost story during the daytime, it's nowhere near as harrowing as it is at night around a campfire with like noises in the woods around you. And so in the cloisters, I really wanted to build this environment that would make it possible for these characters to begin to believe that they had stumbled across a deck of tarot cards that might tell the future. And because Aruna isn't in that environment, she isn't in that atmosphere, she's so much better able to resist the fever that is possessing everyone around her. Yeah, I thought she was such a great counterpoint to the opposite of the cloister. She wasn't in that cloister, but it also... um, I think served the theme of allowing your reader to consider all aspects of what was laid before them. And so I thought she was a really good character to present some of those perspectives. And and not to say that it's not exciting and you know very uh, an excellent plot. All of that is great, but you do present things for people to consider and think about from these different perspectives. And that was one of the reasons why I thought that character was really interesting. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I love the path of all the characters and the growth of the character Anne and everything that she went through. Almost her gaining of wisdom during this and um, opening herself up to things but then still staying wise. I, I loved all of the characters in this. Did you relate to any one character in your own life more than the others? 
You know, I think it's funny. It's interesting to me to be an ex-academic. I mean, obviously, I still teach students today, but I, I don't kind of write and research the way I did when I was in graduate school. And I think it's sort of funny to have your first novel be a novel about art history when you're an art historian. And there's this kind of, I think, tacit assumption in some cases that... Um, some of it's autobiographical or that I've experienced things like this. And the reality is for me, um, I mean, I sort of wish my academic experience had been this dramatic. It definitely is <laughs> not. Um, but I think for me, you know, the one thing I can really relate to is Anne, when she goes from Walla Walla to New York, I wanted there to be these kinds of passages in the novel about how alien it can feel when you are a native West Coaster to move to the East Coast. Because for me, when I left undergrad in California, I went to Williams for my master's thinking I wanted to stay on the East Coast for graduate school for my PhD. And I have to tell you, I don't know how East Coasters do it. I'm married to an upstate New Yorker. The weather is just absolutely <laughs> impossible. And so I wanted, you know, as someone who, you know, grew up on the West Coast, I know the kind of alienation I felt kind of living in an East Coast landscape. And I really wanted that to come through because I do think there is this sense that, I mean, whether you're in Manhattan or upstate New York, the city, Manhattan, is nothing like San Francisco or Los Angeles or Seattle. I mean, it's dramatically different in every way. The landscape is dramatically different. The summers are hotter. They're more humid. I mean, the air just feels different. And I think sometimes we as a nation kind of understate the differences between our geographic regions. And to me, I felt so viscerally when I moved to the East Coast, how different it was than the world I was used to, that it just made me feel sort of always outside of myself in a strange way. And so I think that's what I related to most in the character of Anne is actually this kind of not so much the fish out of water, but the, you know, kind of Californian or West Coaster ending up on the East Coast is, is you know, I still find it challenging when I travel to see my in-laws in upstate New York. I'm just like, it's so humid here. How do you do it? <laughs> well, that's, we're in New York. We're yeah. talking to you from New York and we, we're New Yorkers. We do love New York. I love Manhattan. I'm so happy my kids ended up there, but thank you for sharing that. So a little bit, I have to wonder, do you think Anne, do you think each character in the story was a cloister to themselves? Oh, you know, that's really fascinating. And I, I think certainly, yes, because they're all on some level following their own obsessions. And I do think that's the one thing that academia really teaches you is to honor your obsession, no matter how deeply niche it is. I mean, I, I have friends who have spent, you know, 15 years studying like a two-year period in the history of art. And that is just all they do. And I think in that sense, as academics, we're all a little bit cloistered in our own worlds, which is why, you know, university departments are so important because it helps you kind of talk to somebody who might work, <laughs> yeah. you know, in areas surrounding you. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that 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 is true. They are kind of all their own little cloisters. Well, this book, The Cloisters, uh, Katie, I just have to say congratulations. It's quite an accomplishment to have a debut novel hit the New York Times bestseller list, um, be recommended by so many wonderful uh, book clubs, book lovers, book enthusiasts, book experts, and we say congratulations to you, and thank you so much for coming on. Can you give us a little hint of what's on your radar, what's coming up next? 
Yeah, I've actually finished my next novel. Um, I'm currently working on revisions and it's a story set in Italy about a family who has a tragic death happen 30 years ago and they return to the same location and it happens again, again, someone dies. And it's the question of kind of family mythology and the stories we tell ourselves. Um, and there may or may not be like a cursed necklace involved. Uh, so I'm kind of working through that right now. And uh, it's it's been a joy to write. And I feel, I do have to say, I feel so lucky. I know that my path is not the path most debut novelists experience. And so I feel really honored um, that readers have connected with the book and that it's ended up getting so much support. Um, and I think a huge part of that too is a credit to my publication team at Atria. They've, I mean, everyone there has just been absolutely incredible. Well, your writing is very beautiful for a debut novel. Um, your characters are deep, and we just love talking with you today. I want to tell our listeners, if you want to connect with Katie Hayes, you can find her on her website. She's also on Instagram and Twitter. Katie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank, Thank you. you both so much. It was such a joy. Too. Back to the slopes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, so interesting talking to Katie today. And yeah, her characters had such a depth of growth and change. I mean, when you just are graduating from undergrad, you're getting an internship, you're hoping to get in for your master's, you still have a lot to learn. You know, I thought I knew so much back then and still had so much to learn. Um, the character, Anne, said something that hit me so curious, and I wish we could have talked to Katie about this too. Anne believed she had no real choice but to end up in the cloisters. She began to believe that there were no real choices in life. That is if the fate of your future was already laid out for you. To the extent that, and I don't want to give a spoiler, she dealt with buried shame and guilt. And at one point she logically soothed that guilt freed herself from it by saying she hadn't had a choice in the matter anyway. What was going to happen was going to happen. And I really thought long and hard about that. What, what, what are your feelings about that or maybe even beliefs or comments? Yeah, I thought that was one of the themes running through this story that gets us talking. I mean, you and I have been talking about this issue for days and days and days. But this idea of, you know, fate versus free will or choice and that was the belief of this character. She may have believed that things were in the cards or that it was a fate determined long ago. Uh, but many other people, myself included, believe that we have a free will in terms of how we go about our business, the choices that we make. Now, are there things that influence our free will? Absolutely. There are people who influence us, circumstances. But one of the interesting things that I thought Katie brought up and is also evident in this book is this idea how sometimes in that cloistered environment, we have things that suggest to us that it's maybe outside of our hands and that fate is pressing on us in a certain direction. And perhaps that's what befell this character where she felt that, that pull because of the beliefs and the circumstances and the cloistered environment that she was in. Of whatever her thing. So fate and choices mixed together is an interesting subject. If life was only about fate, why even bother to make a choice? I'm more with you. Um, you know, we all have different beliefs, but I do believe in free will and choices. 
I don't believe in fate. I really don't believe in luck either. I think that sometimes we love to make excuses for our poor choices, and some things in life are just a result of many circumstances all spinning and twirling in together. Things that we do and tr- and hope for and dream for and uh, work towards are not always within our control. They're in the control of parents, teachers, employers, educational institutions, um, the weather, whether you show up for a job because it's raining out. Does that mean that you were never allowed to show up for the job because it was always going to rain that day? I don't go to that extreme. I loved watching the characters in this book deal with some of these issues, and I found it very interesting. But for me, I believe in the power of choice, the freedom of choice, and a responsibility for our actions. Yeah, and and that's one of the great things about this book was the characters were wrestling with questions that people have been wrestling with for thousands of years. And some people land over here, some people land over here, some people have a very inconsistent worldview that doesn't line up when you ask them deeper questions. But I think everybody needs to almost settle that question for themselves because it does, as you point out, speak to our responsibility, accountability for the actions that we take. And one of the characters in this story, and I won't say which one, um, almost absolved herself or himself of accountability for choices by, you know, blaming fate. And and again, everybody has different ideas of where they come out on this issue, but you do need to affirmatively and intentionally think about it mm-hmm. and know where you stand. Mm-hmm. And I thought that Kat, the character Patrick said something interesting. He said, we long to explain the world around us to make sense of the unknown. Um, Patrick, this character in the book, sought divination. A lot of other people, people seek lots of different things in this world to explain the unknown. One of the major things people look for is God, a a presence of God, a connection to God. Um, Katie brought up the Christian uh, worldview in the Renaissance and how strong that was at the time. Um, We have all these things going today. But I guess there is inherent maybe inside mankind a wonder about the world around us, the things we cannot see, and how we can understand it, maybe tap into it a greater power, uh, a knowing helpful source, a something that would give us a glimpse of the future. I think this is something that we inherently long for. Yeah, I mean, think about when you are fearful, one of the things that you do is you move to take control over the things where you can exert control, you exert that control because you're fearful, you're worried, you have anxiety and you want to give yourself a little bit of a sense of peace. And I think the future is no different. And being able to try try to exert that control over the future or to know that future, I think a lot of people wrestle with that and it's not a surprise. Um, but let me ask you this, if, if you could know the future. Would you even want to? It's so funny you should say that because I was just about to say that. It was going to be my next comment. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say no. Because, you know, I'll tell you, I look at it this way. Through life and I'm older, I have um, opened my own business. I have done some unusual things, this podcast being one of them. If I knew before I attempted this new venture or when I opened my business in Pittsburgh, how difficult it would be 
or maybe all the hurdles I would have to overcome. Even say to a young person, just applying and going to college, there are so many unseen little mountains, hills, valleys that you have to go through. You may say, I'm not going to go there. Let's even say a relationship. I'm not going to go there. It's going to be too difficult. A move to a different place. Oh, let me see everything I'm in store for. Uh-uh, not doing it. Maybe sometimes it's good that we don't know it all and that we take one little step at a time. You know, deal with this day, only this day. Here's the difficulties today. I did it. Now let's look at tomorrow. If we had our whole life laid out for us like a novel, I think it might be pretty tough. Yeah. I'm just an opinion here, but I think it would be tough. How, no, how do you feel? I agree because, first of all, I wouldn't be the person I am today had I not gone through the hell that I went through in the past. Now, had somebody told me these are some of the things you're going to experience, I would have run the other way. There's not even a question. But then again, I wouldn't be who I am today, mm -hmm. which I'm very thankful for who I am because who I am is somebody that you know, I am excited about. I love the fact that I stand for certain things and take certain actions. And I don't want to know about those bad things coming because I think I'd fixate on them. It would become a big black cloud. And I don't want that hanging over my life. That's what we call worry. We worry about things in the future that haven't even come yet, and 90% of them are never going to be here. And we know that age-old adage that, you know, yes, I've been through so much, but I wouldn't be where I am today without all the struggles. This is true. A lot of it is true. I don't want to go back and do the struggles again. If someone would say to me, this is your path, I'd say, I'm taking a different path. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right. I think this is a wonderful thing, and it's not for everyone, to come through a whole portion of your life and say, whew, I did it. You know what? I like who I am today. I'm glad that I survived all those things. I'm wiser. I'm stronger. But it's not always the case when you go through those hardships like that. And maybe I think that's why, even in this book, Cloisters, people turn and look for things that are unseen and unknowing to guide them on their pathway. I personally am a believer in God. I'm a God, I'm a believer in God. That's where I look for my answers. Um, there's a myriad of different places that people look for answers today. Katie brought up a whole bunch of very intriguing areas in this book, The Cloisters, but it led the reader um, to consider a lot of different things and it's very thought provoking, very. Yeah, yeah I agree, absolutely. So re listeners, thank you for joining us. Going to give you-know-what, you-know-who, a you-know-what, the Mr. Mark Carey, the man of the hour. Let me tell you, the brain's beyond what we do here. And ladies, if you're watching on YouTube, you may want to check it out. I think he might still be single. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We'll see you again next week. We appreciate what you do, Mark, so much. You are really the producer, not just the sound engineer. I want to give you a couple storm predictions to pique your interest. We have Pam Jenoff, codenamed Sapphire, CJ Box, Stormwatch, Mary Kubica, just the nicest couple, and B.A. Paris, the prisoner. In the meantime, listeners, stay on the radar with Bookstorm by visiting our website at bookstormpodcast.com. You can visit us on Facebook, on Instagram, Twitter, on TikTok. And if you'd like to see us in person or one of our amazing authors, just look us up on YouTube, search for Bookstorm and Podcast, and we should come right up. And until next time, one of the best ways to brave the storm is to dive down deep in life-changing fiction. <laughs> <laughs>